Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring, the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. Our topic to today is burnout to balance. What can we do to turn burnout around? And our very special guest today is Dr. Drea Letamendi. She is a licensed psychologist and consultant who specializes in mental health training and corporate wellness. Dr. Drea is a TEDx speaker and delivered TEDx sessions on resilience and media during a pandemic. And this was part of the special COVID-19 series that TED sessions were doing. Uh, Dr. Letamende is also, and I love this, Director of Resilience at UCLA. So we're going to have to talk about what that means in a second. But she has also been featured in The Atlantic, The Guardian, The Los Angeles Times, and on Disney+. Plus. Isn't that for young people? I think so. Okay, well, even young people get burned out, that's for sure. But Dr. Letamende also has her own podcast called The Arkham Sessions, and she examines pop culture and its impact on mental health, which is the start for our conversation for burnout. So I really appreciate you're here. Thank you so much. Judith, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's such a pleasure. And, uh, so timely, right, to have this conversation about mental wellness. You better believe it because I need you to help me. So let's just start with what is burnout? That is a great place to start because I think this word burnout has um, has been very common in the zeitgeist, especially right now. Um, employees are talking about it. Family members are talking about it. In young people, I work with a lot of, a lot of college students uh, young people in their late teens, early 20s are telling me they're burnt out. Um, so I think it's important to really name it. You know, what is this thing we're calling burnout? Technically, burnout is different than stress. Burnout is a uh, d- the development of chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. So it's usually characterized by the three following dimensions. Feelings of energy depletion. So this is usually us saying, I feel tired, I feel exhausted. The second is increased mental distance from one's job. So that's sort of like feeling kind of adrift, maybe feeling like you're languishing, not sure what you're doing. And then the third, and this is really important, the feelings of cynicism, doubts, negativism about oneself or one's relationship to the job. And so while it's a type of stress, it's a bit different than stress in the sense that burnout requires a different level of intervention, a different set of tools and strategies to address and resolve it. Whereas stress is typically um, something that actually any one of us can experience, but um, usually can be managed with some really um, effective, quick stress management tools, getting good sleep, eating well, uh, exercising, that sort of thing. Burnout requires a bit of a deeper intervention. Okay. And before we get to that, we have to get to it. Why? do people become burned out? And, and if you want to f- fold in stressed out too, that's okay. Yes, and there's a lot of overlap. Um, but to, to really hone in on burnout, you know, again, it's this, this type of deterioration. And usually when I talk to clients about burnout and, and how to distinguish it from everyday stress, uh, which a lot of us also feel, it's this sense that your spirituality is disrupted, your personhood has been negatively impacted in some way. And this really forges our conversation around burnout. Um, This means that how you see the world, how you see yourself, how you see the future, that outlook as it relates to your job has been challenged or disrupted significantly. And I often, when I work with clients, I, I talk to them about the three Ds to answer your question very specifically. You feel deteriorated. So it, you have a sense that your, you know, top to bottom, head to toe, your, your full self feels exhausted, lacking recovery. You just don't have the same sense of self that you used to. The second D is detached. This is the sense of um, 
losing sight or meaning of your work, having this kind of disconnection. Why am I doing this? Why is this valuable to me? How is this helping me or others? And then finally, the sense of derailment. Uh, and this is really common, the sense of kind of losing track, um, not really feeling uh, that you're pursuing something in your work identity that is valuable to you. So you've kind of lost that sense of mission, um, lost that sense of acceleration, enjoyment, and so forth. And so when you drill down those three different kind of symptoms, if we can kind of simplify it that way, that's where I'd like to start usually with folks around, are you feeling burnt out? And what are the reasons that you are starting to get a sense of physical, mental, and personal exhaustion? So when people leave the job, their job for the day and come home, when they feel like a shell of themselves, they have nothing left to give. If you go home, well, that's great because there's nobody there you have to give anything to. But for the purposes of addressing people going through divorce and having to go to work, you have to take care of your family when you get home, at least the kids, right? Or pets. And to feel a shell of yourself, then what's it like when you're at home? That's incredibly critical to our ability, especially to, to recover from burnout. Burnout isn't really just happening at work, right? Um, we bring that home. Uh, even if we're working remotely, we bring that sense of um, a criticism, cynicism, negativity, exhaustion, pessimism. We take that with us. Those are very, very deep feelings. It's hard to shake that off, right? And so how does that manifest in our non-work relationships? What does that look like? Um, folks have very different ways, you know, as you know, as you've observed and seen, folks have different ways of expressing those negative feelings. But often it's the ones that are close to us that will notice these uh, gradual but noticeable changes in our affect, in our mood, in our style. Um, and so you mentioned this, like this very uh, visceral idea, the shell of the self. If I come home and I'm trying to shake off things at work and I'm a shell of myself, a shell of a person, that means that it's more difficult for people who care about me and love me to connect with me. They will make efforts to soothe or comfort me. They may make efforts to um, want to bond. They may make efforts to be future oriented with me, planning a vacation, uh, just you know, planning uh, even errands with me. I may be unavailable to do those emotional tasks. I may be standoffish. I may be rude. I may be angry. I may be bitter. So, you know, humans have such a difficult time compartmentalizing emotions, even though the, uh, the origin of those emotions was related to work, they will find themselves leaking into other parts of our relationships. I found myself, I, 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 I don't even know how to term it. I think it's part burnout, part stress, but I'm going to give you an example via me that after a hard day of dealing with people's divorces all day long, and you know, that takes, this is just one of many professions where it literally takes your spirit and your soul to be able to do this work. And then I have cats at home and they want to love me. They want to connect with me, of course, after I feed them. And I can't sometimes. I was noticing that, I mean, don't you want cats that want to that want you to pet them? Who doesn't want that? <laughs> you know, we all want the cat that's fluffy, adorable, and wants to sit on your lap. And that was even too much. And I had to take stock of myself and say, okay, wait, what is going on? So I think, isn't this what people have to do when you're noticing behavior that's not loving, kind, connecting, as you said, 
what do we do? How do we take stock of ourselves and turn that around? There's, uh, there's definitely a chance for us to recover from burnout. And so I want to be uh, hopeful around this because I know some folks feel so much at the end of their rope when they are fatigued that they feel like, I don't know, a sense of like complacency or this is it, this is my life. I'm, you know, if someone will say, well, I'm in customer service or I'm a restaurant worker, I'm a health worker. So my life is just going to be like this. You know, I want to assure folks that um, there's uh, a tremendous amount of work uh, that involves coaches, psychologists, researchers, experts who are uh, involved in many different types of fields and see the impact that that our work and labor has on our mental health. And so there, there are things that we can do for it. Um, and you ask an excellent question, which is, you know, start the starting point, how, what do I look for? What does my check-in look like? And so, you know, first I want to ask people to just do a general check-in with their bodies, right? Um, I'm the kind of person who never really pays attention to what my body's telling me. And I have to actually pause usually at the beginning of the day and the, and then at the end of the day, you don't have to have a diary, diary or journal or be sophisticated about this. It's really just take a moment and do like a body scan head to toe. Uh, what is, what am I feeling? Where does it, you know, where do I feel the most tense? What am I thinking? What are some of the thoughts that are flowing through my mind? Um, and what are the visceral experiences? You know, am I agitated? Am I feeling alone and, and sad? Am I uh, angry? And a lot of us feel angry. And I think, you know, especially Judith, for the clients you work with, those feelings are going to come up, but are rarely articulated in oneself. I feel angry because I was wronged. I was betrayed. Um, I was lied to. Uh, whatever, you know, reasons might create um, marital and couples conflicts. Or right? I made a bad decision. Yes. And now I'm dealing with that shame and guilt and I'm acting out or I'm trying to push it down. Um, so that's one of the, the first things that I tell folks is, you know, we do that. We should do this every day is just check in with ourselves and see how we're feeling and what needs that, that um, tender care. When we're burnt out, there are some kind of like signals that, um, or signs that are readily available to us. So as we do these check-ins, uh, some things will probably let us know. So the first one is emotional agitation. This is um, sort of like having a short fuse. Um, it's it's really like little room, little flexibility, uh, little little chance to kind of just um, understand the situation. But it's a uh, quick to judge, quick to snap at people, quick to say, get away from me. That's emotional agitation. So that could be a sign of burnout. Um, I want to say too, as I go through these, that burnout happens on the extremes. So it's like either something is a little bit too much or something is absent. And that has a lot to do with our emotion regulation. Sometimes people feel numb when they're burnt out and we wonder like, how can that be? It's really that they've, they've sort of become so fatigued with the emotional labor that they kind of find this protective way to, um, to resolve it. They just don't think about it. They don't feel it. They avoid it. And that numbness is accessible. You can understand that you're numbing when you take a moment to check in, you know, am I, I'm actually not feeling too much. Um, and the extreme of that is the uh, readiness for conflict. So somebody who's so emotional or so um, so in their emotions that they are um, often frequently in a, a, a conflict or in an argument or ready to dispute. Um, and that's a sign that actually other people may notice in us. We may not notice that in us, but others can. Um, and then a couple of things really quick. Uh, uh, emotion, uh, cognitive disorganization. So the sense of 
noticing the decreased ability of remembering things or um, doing tasks that used to be kind of um, routine for you or, um, you know, just having a, 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 a lack of um, kind of uh, perception or perfectionism around us. We kind of lose track of what we're doing. So that disorganized thinking, it can come up a lot because of the way that our um, brain works is that we're just so flooded in stress that it, it impacts our decision making. A lack of continuity. Yes. Great way to say that. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's that executive functioning that begins to, um, to reduce and uh, get disrupted. And then we find this, this uh, difficulty in kind of getting things done. Um, the last thing I do want to mention, and this is the case for some folks who are in um, health work, humanitarian work, uh, coaches, counselors, social workers. Um, this actually includes a lot of different health industry, uh, health and helping industries. This idea of having secondary traumatic stress. So this is when the work that that we're in really impacts our emotional well-being because we're having flashbacks or intrusive thoughts about what we've observed, witnessed, or heard as a part of our job. Um, And uh, again, hopefully all of these things can be assessed and noted by the self. You don't need a professional to uh, give you any kind of exam or diagnose you, although that's highly recommended if you feel you do need formal support. Um, But this is something that we can all check in on. and kind of uh, do this self-appraisal and start there in order to better know what is it that I need to work on in order to overcome this. I know that your specialty is not divorce, but you may have, I'm sure you've known people that have gotten divorced. Family members may have gotten divorced. So what divorce does for people is it turns their lives upside down. Their sense of self has changed. They're questioning their decision-making. They're fearful about the future. So, so many things come into play and they have to go to work. Can we brainstorm maybe some approaches for people to take uh, that can mitigate any irritableness, lack of continuity, feeling of being overwhelmed uh, now that a divorce has been filed for and we have to carry our on our lives as normal. And it's not normal. Absolutely. It, it's, it would be incredibly challenging to... Uh, to experience a divorce or any kind of personal separation, to have this, um, you know, this event or this traumatic experience and not have it impact how we are in our work. Um, and, and I want to uh, invite this idea or this notion that our relationship with work, our perception of work, our um, value of work is unique for everybody, but is definitely shifting over time. The concept of just working for money is a bit outdated. Uh, Younger, newer generations work because it's purposeful, because it's meaningful, because it gives them value. And so your point is so critical. How do we not violate that? That is a relationship. How do we not violate and threaten that relationship when another relationship is uh, is disrupted. Yes, it's, you know, it's funny because before the pandemic, we would all bring our personal lives to work and we would bring work home, right? It's just kind of the way we lived as Americans. I'm not sure that's the way other people live in other countries, but that was the American way. Now COVID-19 hits and you've done some extensive work with uh, burnout um, and wellness uh, um, while and as a result of COVID-19, 
but were but many most people were working from their homes. So you could have a relationship that isn't going so well that maybe at some future point was going to end in a divorce. Now you can't get away. You have no place to go. Work is no longer your respite from the relationship because you're working from the place where that relationship lives. And some people are still working from home. Not everybody's back to the office yet. So for these folks, what can we suggest to balance out until we can change for the best? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one uh, crucial piece here is kind of knowing the self. That's the preservation of personhood. And I, I love how you describe how during a divorce or separation, the sense of self is impacted in, in certain ways. And so that's this kind of preservation piece. Uh, this is the connection to really what makes you who you are, how you see yourself, what matters to you. And this can be as uh, structured as creating like a, a values grid or creating a journal and writing down all the things that, um, that kind of... Uh, the things that you identify with, the things that matter to you. Brene Brown has a free grid of um, of values, of personal values. And if you just Google that, you'll find so many different descriptions, um, uh, terms that might really be meaningful, especially if you're if you've never done this sort of thing before. Um, but that's a good place to start. Is is as we start to feel adrift, not ourselves, uh, um, somewhat numb. Let's return to the things that you know, brought us to the job to begin with. Um, and that's kind of the opening question too, is, you know, what what is your personal origin story? What brought you to this industry, this type of work, this particular position or, or the people that you work with? What was that exciting spark, that, again, origin story that is um, a, a very central part of who you are in, in your kind of uh, professional role. And as we connect to those things, we can start to understand how uh, that can be nourished, that can be fed, that can be um, preserved and cultivated without having to um, rely on that personal relationship. And hopefully this, this, can, this can be true for most people, that um, contributing to our work identity or our professional role can mean something fulfilling during a time that can be really draining and heartbreaking, like divorce. At work, if you have health insurance from your employer and if you have a pension from your employer, what I tell my clients is please check in with human resources let them know a divorce has been filed for. And then when the divorce is final, circle back because the pension will more than likely be divided and health insurance absolutely will be revised because you can't carry your now former spouse on your health insurance. At that point, can you maybe look into resources that your human resources department may have for you specifically addressing the stress resulting maybe in burnout as a result of the divorce, if in fact you still really love your job? Absolutely. That's hopefully something that's available to most employees, but not available to all employees is that um, helpful relationship that we can have with HR. And so in some instances, for some companies that I've worked uh, for as a consultant, they have affinity groups. And so these might be um, uh, self-forming groups that identify in a certain way. It could be a parenting group, could be a, 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 a cultural group. And, and in some cases, there, there may be a group that is um, managing a, a life event, right? And so some, some companies uh, offer these opportunities to participate or form affinity groups. There's the uh, EAP opportunity, the Employment Assistant Program, which 
usually has a robust uh, support around uh, mental health counseling. And typically, from my experience, it's so interesting. Many companies have this option and only about, on average, four to eight percent of um, of their employees will actually participate in their programs. So, so much, uh, so many resources go into it, um, but it turns out not enough of us are utilizing this service. And why not? You know, that's a great question. I think um, at the start, it's not knowing. So it's a, a lack of understanding of what's available to them. Uh, you know, Judith, I think as you talked about that scenario of going to HR, I think individually there might be some personal uh, fear, embarrassment, um, you know, worry. What is my, you know, what are they going to think if I'm going through a separation or divorce or going through this personal conflict? It's, it's difficult for us uh, in general, right, to, uh, to disclose those things. And I think, too, there's a lot of um, stigma around it. Um, uh, the idea that a lot of us have been taught to keep those things inside the family, inside, you know, the, the, uh, the, the people that are involved and not to bring that outside uh, into other places. And that's just not how uh, life actually works, right? There are so many different ways in which our, our um, interpersonal spheres actually intersect. Um, and I think the pandemic has really uh, clouded and, um, and kind of bled those boundaries or, or those divisions for us to realize, like, actually, there's a lot of overlap here. So hopefully folks will be encouraged simply to ask those questions. What's available from my employer to support me in this? Um, Because ultimately, the employer does want the the, uh, employee, the staff to be um, able to come to work, to be uh, competent, to be focused, to be um, um, aware, ready, all those things they are invested in that. And so that's something where it's like, it's a win-win. You know, I really never thought about it before the last year or two, how invested an employer is in the health and welfare of their employees. It just, I have not worked for major corporations. Um, I've been entrepreneurial for, for quite a while, but worked for small companies before that. So I wasn't aware of all of the programs that have been developed along the way until recently, until the last couple of years, because, and this is what I want the audience to know, that employers are invested in the well-being of their employees because then they get the best working relationship from their employees and who doesn't want healthy, healthy, happy, well-functioning employees. So with that, yes, I loved your point that there is embarrassment. You, you know, you may want to talk to your friends about this. It may take you a while to even talk to your friends if you're getting divorced, but then to go to your job and have that conversation But again, Dr. Brene Brown's initial work in vulnerability, I keep going back to that all the time and realize and remember that when people admit something that's hard to admit, that's personal, it's like all the walls have melted The connection between people is stronger once you admit vulnerability. Can you please address that? Absolutely. This is really something that, you know, I think we are kind of socialized to not do. Um, When we're younger, a lot of us are told, you know, suck it up, don't cry. There's a lot of, you know, gender roles involved or gender expectations involved. But this concept of being emotionally expressive, especially in the workplace, has been stigmatized and um, and really kind of policed uh, uh, for decades. I appreciate the growing acceptance and um, fostering of 
us as workers being more emotionally expressive, being more authentic in our work. We see younger generations really promoting this idea. Be authentic and who you are, because a lot of us are also saying we want to be accepted at work. We want to be uh, included at the workplace. We want to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that also means that we get to be ourselves. Um, this is a type of psychological safety. I feel psychologically safe at work when I can be myself. Um, and being ourselves includes that piece of vulnerability. It means if I'm having a hard time, I, uh, I'm able to take that mental health day or I'm able to tell my supervisor I'm having an off day. Um, I t- just this morning, I was in a meeting and just could not get myself organized and just told one of my uh, peers, one of my colleagues, um, yeah, I'm really feeling, you know, I've, I've, I'm, my staff is low right now. And I said, I'm really, can I just say I'm really feeling the, the absence? I have staff on leave and it's really impacting me. And it was just saying that, that allowed her to kind of slow down a little bit and realize that what we were reviewing together um, needed to be paced out a little bit differently. And then maybe I had some other things on my mind and there was a tremendous amount of respect. And it's so interesting. People think, well, if I say something, it's going to turn into a therapy session. Or if I say something, my boss is going to try to send me to HR or give me a pamphlet. And honestly, the majority of times people listen. They listen, they console, they they express uh, empathy, and then you move forward. And you know, honestly, that's um, that's okay in the workplace, and that really helps build a better understanding of setting pace, of uh, you know, pushing through to your mission or your goals, and um, and really just having a sense that everybody is going through something. You know, isn't that interesting? Everybody's going through something. We, if we really examined our lives, because uh, I was examining the decade, you know, everybody said the pandemic's the worst thing that ever happened. I'm like, you know what? No. Let's just think about all the tragedies that have gone on in our country since we were each born. You will find in every decade, there's been huge tragedies. So that is what life is. It's kind of filled with tragedies and you have these nice little moments in between, but dang, they don't really last that long unless we know how to deal with them. We know how to separate them out. We know how to put them in their place. And that brings me to compartmentalizing time. I I wonder from you if compartmentalizing time might be something that's very helpful. For instance, I'm just not going to worry between the hours of 7 and 8.30 at night. That's my worry-free zone. I'm going to do something else. I don't know. It was just something that came off the top of my head. Right. Some of these different um, strategies for managing stress actually are pretty effective if you're um, matching the the tools to your personality style. So um, a lot of times when I do seminars on self-care practices, I remind folks like, you know, there are some things that are really going to work for you. And there are some things that um, aren't just aren't your thing and, and don't try to force it. Um, right. So I think that's just something to keep in mind for folks who tend to be worriers. The idea of compartmentalizing worry that practice can be very effective. And a part of that is to set a time, set aside time to worry, not necessarily to panic, um, right? But to have a sense um, during this this, uh, structured time to almost give yourself permission to go through the emotions that, that have been in the back of your mind or that you've been trying to avoid during the workday. And sometimes this is, I I don't recommend this right before bedtime because uh, sometimes it can spark additional ruminations or create some sadness or um, activate our minds. But it's really just 20, 30 minutes, maybe even shorter amounts of time of addressing and articulating, sometimes even writing down the things that 
are making us worry. Um, and then your, to your point, having worry-free moments or almost designing times that involve positive emotions, joy, fulfillment, bonding, even just escapism, things that are going to put our minds on something more positive. It is not putting on rose-colored glasses and walking around as if nothing is going on. It's simply savoring. There's, there's this concept in, in psychology called savoring. And it's such, um, such a uh, wonderful part of our emotion regulation. This concept of really being in the moment when you're feeling good, even though it's fleeting, and just letting yourself uh, glow and, um, and uh, exist in those feelings. Um, so all of those things can be implemented on a day-to-day basis. I want to circle back to something you said a couple minutes ago, and it was about yourself. You actually became vulnerable and you shared the moment you had earlier today and how you were being impacted by a lack of support staff. With that, I was thinking, well, in in a company where you have middle managers, you have a hierarchy of management and employees, I wonder if just the employee saying to their immediate supervisor, look, um, just filed for divorce, just wanted you to know, I'm, you know, I've organized myself so that I'm not going to do divorce work at work because people do tend to do that, their divorce work at work. And I work with my own clients on don't return my calls during the day, return them when you go home at night. Don't email me during the day. I have to contact you, but you don't have to return anything Mm. during the day I want you to work. And so I give my clients permission to work during Mm -hmm. the day if that's when their work time is. But going to your immediate supervisor and manager, do you think that would be a good idea, first of all, just to let them know that if they notice anything about you, that would be a little different, maybe a little more irritable or, or, or something different that you're doing the best you can at managing this big incident, this big episode in your life, which won't last forever. But for the time being, what do you think about that? I like this idea with the plan that the individual knows how it impacts them. So starting with maybe checking in with oneself as a primary step, I'm going through this divorce and because of the stress involved or the additional uh, um, burden, uh, the financial burden, the housing burden, the family, whatever this is causing, um, and to do just kind of a, a... a check-in around what, how has that really impacted me? And we can even overlap that into those, those burnout um, components in a way where, you know, well, it's, it, are those things coming up for me? Am I kind of numbing out because I, I have no room for these emotions? And so my reaction is to kind of zone out. And so I'm missing emails. I'm not really present in meetings. I'm, you know, my, my thoughts are elsewhere. Um, Another reaction could be, actually, I just am super involved in work because it's the only time I don't have to think about this divorce. And that could be another way where it comes up at work. I'm um, overly, um, volu- I'm volunteering. I'm um, pretty active. I am taking on more tasks. Whatever, what, however that, th- that, whatever that outcome looks for that person, that's that second piece. So the, the coaching would be around um, acknowledging with with the supervisor what's going on, and you know what's that Biff term? Be brief, just inform, uh, right? Informative, friendly, and friendly. Yes, let's use Biff for that because um, not because we're we're anticipating conflict, but because we know they're not responsible for therapizing us. They're not, you know, th- we want them to know that we're not going to um, engage them in in the actual conflict, but just to inform them. And then that second piece is, and so I've noticed it's it's a uh, letting them know 
how this is manifesting in the workplace. And so it could simply be a statement around, I've noticed how this is starting to impact me at work. And I wanted to let you know, I'm aware of it. I'm taking care of it. And, uh, um, and, and these are the ways in which that comes up. I've noticed I'm having a little bit more difficulty with email or I'm noticing that, um, I'm, uh, I'm taking on maybe more tasks than, than I'm used to. And that follow up piece could be, if there's a resource in HR, you know, please connect me to that and, and I will pursue that independently and, and maybe follow up. Um, so I'm not the kind of person that would say, absolutely do not tell your supervisor, but I would say, tell them with intention and with your framework around how, why is it, why is this person telling me their personal stuff at work? Here's why. This is why I'm telling you this at work. So have that, that sort of justification piece. I love that. I really love that. You know, I wanted to ask you about what does it mean? What is your work around being the director of resilience at UCLA. What do you do? I have been at UCLA since 2017, and I was brought in as a mental health trainer, um, consultant in crisis, uh, basically a, a person leading crisis response. And the the campus is pretty huge. This is a this is an institution with 45,000 employees and another 40,000, 42,000 students. So it's a small city, right? So um, as you can imagine, at the forefront of student life, we have many students who seek support around their mental wellness. It's not everybody who needs a counseling session, um, who needs that one-on-one, you know, clinical partnership or clinical relationship. Many students are developing their social emotional skills. They're developing their time management. They're creating their sense of identities. And so the Resilience Center at UCLA is designed to be a wellness hub to teach those skills, to equip young people with those um, those strategies around mental well-being, around leadership, around community building, and you know, really hoping that as they follow their academic journeys, they're taking those strategies and uh, and skills into their workplace. Um, we also do work with employees and staff at UCLA. And so we might have seminars and workshops on stress management, building resilience into your hybrid schedule, um, how to break up your day if you're sitting in front of a computer and you need to have um, mindfulness exercises or... Um, stress busting breaks, things like that. Um, And then finally, we also try to work closely with community partners and bring in external speakers or have liaison ships with the health center and with other parts of our community. Again, this idea that all of us are working on our mental health. Um, I get a lot of joy from this work because there haven't, I haven't, I cannot imagine any um, any team, office, department, um, or academic unit not benefiting from wellness strategies. And so it's been a very fulfilling job. I would love to work with you there. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds really good. Um, it, it, everything you do there, it's just such a positive thing. But now I, I didn't I didn't bring into your introduction that you've been affiliated with Harvard and I, and you have been. So um, you're, the Institute of Coaching at the Harvard School of Medicine affiliate McLean School. Um, I want to ask you about something because Harvard is heavy duty. I mean, that's the cream of the educational crop, one of the creams of the educational crop. I have had several friends who have gone to Harvard. I have a t-shirt, sweatshirt from Harvard. I visited Boston and, of course, went right to Harvard, the law school, just to (laughs) say I was there. But a friend of mine who went to the School of Administration, she got her law degree from Stanford, and then she got her master's at Harvard in the School of Administration. She thought she was going to go into politics. Mm-hmm. And so that is where I understand people go if you really want to have a career in politics. And she was telling me, back to the mental health piece in this conversation, she was telling me 
that the, um, uh, not the hospital, the psych center was right next to the law school, right in that environment, because the rate of suicide or um, self-harming that can happen because of the stress, and then I guess it leads to burnout maybe, that people express on uh, experience on that level of competition is enormous. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. I do. And I'll say that when I was an undergrad at Cornell University, uh, I faced uh, one of the, I guess, earliest uh, pieces of education around this because uh, Cornell uh, had uh, has many bridges over the gorges that that um, that actually really uh, uniquely make this lovely town of Ithaca and. Uh, my first few weeks there um, included conversations with professors, with other students, with the wellness centers around how common uh, suicidal ideation and completed suicide is because of those opportunities to die by suicide and because of the competitive nature of an Ivy League school. Now, working at UCLA for five years has taught me similarly that a high achieving community, especially uh, college campus um, is going to create patterns of risk factors around mental health and suicide. And those are the, the ones that you mentioned, Judith, the, the concept of competition, the pressure to perform well, and more and more this idea of being successful as early as possible and carrying um, multiple achievements ranging from internships to jobs to uh, academic grades to certain leadership roles, uh, volunteership, the the idea that they these young people have to be performing uh, <laughs> all, all hours of the day leaves little room for them to recover their nervous system. And so that is a huge risk factor. Stress is a huge risk factor for suicide. And loneliness is one of the biggest risk wow. factors for suicide. And this sense of stigma, not being able to talk about oneself, worries that you're not good enough, all those things are present at Cornell, at Harvard, at UCLA, at, at other schools, at other institutions and colleges. And um, I'd say the biggest risk factor. Um, when when we look at the um, the literature on suicide and interpersonal relationships is the sense that um, no one knows you, no one cares about you, no one has your back, you know, um, and that sense of loneliness can be missed. That's a, a real huge risk factor. I think that's one of the most misunderstood concepts around suicide. And I only learned this from a colleague uh, who has attempted suicide and he speaks about suicide ideation. He actually has seven TEDx talks that he's done on it. And he does corporate speaking to um, a, a certain segment, uh, dentists, construction workers, there's like five or six professions where suicide is really high. And he was saying very similarly to what you said, um, that suicide in part occurs or the idea for it occur, occurs because you feel a lack of connection to other people. Absolutely. And when you experience a lack of connection, oh, well then, I mean, no man should be an island, should they? That sense of belonging is our survival. That is the nature of being human, belonging, um, belonging to a community, belonging in a relationship, in a family, uh, the sense that your authentic self matters and that you're seen, cared for, understood. And this sounds super basic, um, but we're missing out on this. A lot of a lot of us are missing out on this. And I think for folks, you know, to circle back to the experience of divorce and separation, um, that may be a trigger. That may be, you know, a risk factor, a time where 
I can't imagine not telling someone on the job, a, a colleague, a supervisor, you know, this is going on in my life and I just wanted you to know. It's powerful because that means somebody has a better understanding that you're going through a rough patch and that you may not be like your normal self. Um, and they, um, they may be real appreciative of you coming forth with that information. And entrusting them, you know, that's a big deal and trusting them. I'm so happy that you circled back to divorce as we come to the end of our hour, because as you were talking and when you used the word belonging, I said, wait a minute, that's the issue with divorce. We don't belong anymore in that unit that we're leaving. So our sense of belonging um, is affected when we know a divorce is imminent. And then that just seeps into everything else in our life because if our primary relationship is now changing, that means that conceivably we will be changing a bit and affecting other relationships in our lives, at least temporarily. Absolutely. And if that primary relationship is disrupted, then a person may be seeking some affiliation, some sense of belonging, some sense of connection. And that's where we might see this come up in different places like the work setting. Yes. This was wonderful. This hour went way too fast. I really, really appreciate your your input and your work in this area. Do you see people privately? Do you have clients or no? You just work on a... Well, I don't... Right now, I don't take individual clients. My clients are um, organizations, companies, uh, teams. And so, um, you know, that's where I really like to kind of... um, that's where I like to work with uh, with teams who are working on on their uh, team well being and on individual well being. So in that case, we're going to do a little twist. Instead of me saying to our audience, and yes, you can call Dr. Drea or email her. What I think the interesting twist might be, if you, one of the listening audience, are working at a company where you think Dr. Drea Letamende could be helpful, you can recommend her to your company. Correct. Love that. Love that. Yes. Thank you. Thank um, you. That would be wonderful. My website is Dr. Dre, Dre, my website is drdreapsychology.com and folks can see um, some of my upcoming presentations, uh, some video clips, things that I've written. You mentioned Disney Plus. Uh, not only for right. kids, uh, Disney Plus is also for us adults who um, who want to connect to storytelling. And so I have a few articles and pieces there if you want to check that out too. I really appreciate that. This has been wonderful. I have so enjoyed meeting you and, and having you come on and, and have this extremely beneficial conversation. Likewise, so, likewise. Uh, thank you. And, and so this information is going to be in the show notes. No worries. Well, I'd like to thank all of you, as I always do, for joining us. I hope this was beneficial to you. This is certainly a big problem, a big issue going on in our lives. Please share this with anybody that you know um, that this would be beneficial to. Uh, You can communicate with me through SpeakPipe on my website, theamicabledivorceexpert.com. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else. 